Hello, hello. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to church. Wow, it's been a while since we've had a group this big in person uh, joining with us together on the Sabbath. It's awesome to see everyone here today. Um, if you're joining us in person and you've been with us for around the past month or so, um, this is part five of a series we're entitled The Year of Jesus. And it's crazy that we're at the end of January now and we started this at the beginning of the year. And as Pastor Chris mentioned, really the premise of this series is this idea of where are you really at with Jesus? And what could your year, what could 2022 look like if Jesus was a bigger part of your life? If you were a follower of Jesus as opposed to someone that just kind of knows about Jesus. And for the past four weeks, a lot of the sermons, and really the crux of a lot of these sermons have been around asking, your, asking you the question, like, where are you really at with Jesus? I mean, like, yes, you say you know Jesus, you say you believe in Jesus, you come to church, but what does that really mean? And a lot of these sermons have kind of been in your face, kind of introspective, making you look inward, like, where do I really stand with Jesus? So again, it's been uh, about a month since we've been in this series, so do a quick recap uh, for those of you that may, may have missed any of these parts. But in, in part one of this series, Pastor Chris introduced this concept of DTR, or defining the relationship. Where do you actually stand with Jesus? And the versus statement he gave, the, the, the kind of this or that statement he gave was decision versus commitment. Where you are with Jesus is the best description that you've simply made a decision to follow Jesus just to know who he is, or a commitment to following Jesus. And really, it sounds like just semantics, right? I made a decision, we sing the songs, I have decided to follow Jesus. But really, what following Jesus looks like, to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus, is more than just a one-time decision that you make. I believe in Jesus, I know who he is. But committing to following Jesus, it, it's a much more deeper uh, commitment that we make uh, as opposed to just deciding to believe in who he is. And the next week, he talked about this nuance between knowledge versus intimacy. And really, the better way to phrase that is, do you just know about Jesus? I know who Jesus is. I know the scriptures. I know what's right or wrong. Or do you genuinely have an intimate relationship with Jesus? And obviously the one Jesus calls us into is an intimate relationship to know who he is, not simply about him from other people's lives. And again, we talked about that you can have knowledge but not have intimacy, but you can't really have intimacy with Jesus without a certain amount of knowledge in who he is and what he's done for you. And in part three, um, Pastor Chris called this the most difficult part of the series, and I would agree. And the statement that he asks is, is, is Jesus one of many aspects of your life? Is he one of many things, or is he the one and only thing in your life? And the reason this is a, such a difficult part of the series is because, obviously, if you're sitting here, you know the answer is Jesus should be the one and only thing in my life. Yes, I know that's what it should be, but what does that really look like? What does it really mean to have Jesus be the one and only thing in your life? Does it mean I can't care about anything outside of church, outside of reading the Bible? Like Jesus didn't do a lot of things. I, I can't do sports because Jesus didn't play sports. Technically, Jesus didn't do algebra. Should I not care about my math homework? Should I just go into the mountains and be a monk and just live alone? What does it really mean to follow Jesus and have him be the one and only aspect in my life? And what we broke it down to is essentially, instead of having Jesus be an aspect, uh, be in every aspect of your life, as opposed to compartmentalizing him into one aspect in your life. Instead of having, okay, this is my school life, this is my family life, this is my work life, and then God is over here, having God be an aspect of every aspect of your life, be involved in every aspect of your life, is how you have God be the one and only in your life. And last week, Pastor Chris introduced kind of this new concept, and really, the kind of tension he asked is, it's possible, and especially for a lot of us that grew up in the church, it's possible for us to have a relationship with Jesus wherein we grew up and we were raised in the church, but not necessarily raised in Christ. And the key operative word that he had us do, um, kind of think about, was this concept of ownership. Does your faith belong to you? Or does it belong to someone else? And the three questions he asked us to kind of frame whether or not your faith truly belongs to you was, when your faith 
is simply an act, a front that you put on, a, a, an act that you put on for a certain day of the week, then it's not your own faith. When your faith is all about rules and just doing the right thing in a list of morality, it's not actually your faith. And when your faith is just about you, if God never disagrees with you, God never pushes you out of your comfort zone, God always affirms what you want to do and your wants and desires, chances are you don't actually own your faith and something or someone else has influence over your faith. So if you're here last week, that was kind of, he kind of left it at that. Okay, if you said yes to any of these three questions, you probably don't have ownership over your faith. And what we didn't really talk about, and the reason why this is kind of a mini-series within a series, is the question that naturally arises is, all right, I listened to part four. You know what? Maybe you left last week and you're like, okay, maybe I don't have ownership of my faith. You know, there's some things, maybe there's some things I need to work out. You know, sometimes I do feel like my faith is just an act that I put on on Sabbath. Sometimes, now that I think about it, I don't know that God has ever disagreed with me, and I don't know if I'm following Jesus or Jesus is following me. I'm not sure if I have ownership over my faith. And if that's you, you probably left last week thinking, Okay, well then how does one obtain ownership? How can I get ownership of my own faith? How can I actually have control and responsibility of my own faith? What does it actually look like and what can I do? And so this week we'll be answering some of those questions of what it looks like to have ownership over your faith. What are some characteristics that people who own their own faith all share and have? And then how can we sustainably live a life of following Jesus and owning our own faith? And before we go into that, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer as we pray over this message. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, thank you again for this opportunity and this, this chance for us to gather together as a full group in this church on the Sabbath, Lord, and worship together. Lord, I ask that as we enter into your word, Lord, I, I ask that you pray. I pray over this message, Father. I ask that your spirit um, be here, Lord. Holy Spirit, you're welcome not only in this space, in this room, but into our hearts and our minds, Lord. And may this worship be one of spirit and truth as we sing, Lord. We love you, and you are the reason why we are here, Lord. Help us to never forget that. I praise you in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so the first kind of aspect of what it means to have ownership of your faith, and we kind of, Pastor Chris and I are talking about this and coming up with what are some three ways we can really package this is, a lot of people that have ownership of their faith share this characteristic. And the characteristic is, when you own your faith, you recognize that your faith is your responsibility. That your faith is your responsibility. And to open up, it's like, it seems a little harsh. Like, whoa, the first impression of that sentence is like, whoa, like your faith is your responsibility. What, is that, what does that actually mean? What are you trying to say about that? And what I'm, not trying, what I'm trying to say is this. When it comes to your relationship with Jesus and your decision to follow Jesus as your personal God and he's my God and I am his son, a lot, a lot of following Jesus comes down to the ball being in your court. And the reason I say that is this. In many ways, God has already made his stance and his position towards you very clear. He says, I love you. I want to be a part of your life. I want to be with you forever. But because of his posture of love and his policy of love for you, he allows you to make that decision. So again, God has made his position abundantly clear. I love you. I want to be a part of your life. Let's, let's do life together. And then I want you to spend eternity with me. However, in a lot of ways, he leaves the ball in your court. The decision to follow me is ultimately up to you. Now, that is not to say that God is just standing by watching you, watching your life with his arms folded. If you don't choose to accept him and he's like, you know what, I'm not going to acknowledge your presence until you acknowledge me. That's not the case at all. Personally speaking, I can say there have been so many times in my life when, when I felt, quote, unquote, far from God, when, you know, I didn't have the most consistent faith. And it was always, always in those moments, God reaching out and nudging me in his grace and his mercy back towards him that brought me back to Jesus. But at the end of the day, not to say that God isn't involved in your life at all, but in many ways, ultimately, your decision to follow Jesus, to have a true relationship with him, to be his disciple, the ball is in your court. He calls all of us and he gives his love to everyone. But at the end of the day, 
it is your responsibility. Now, to hear that concept of your faith is your responsibility can seem a little bit like jarring, a little bit harsh, especially if you're someone maybe that grew up in the church and maybe there are a few people here or maybe more people than not in this church. Maybe you grew up and you had a not-so-great church experience. You grew up in church um, and your experience generally with church was it was fairly cold, fairly calloused, maybe a very legalistic atmosphere. You felt like you couldn't be yourself at church and you had to keep a front up, otherwise people would think poorly of you. Maybe you had an experience of church where church leaders and people that were involved in church were very hypocritical and you, you couldn't put the pieces together. You say this at church, but then you come home and I know the way you act, other words, and, and it created this weird tension in your life. Or maybe there's someone at church that really hurt you, a church leader, someone in church leadership hurt you and, and it scarred you and because of that you couldn't really come to terms and it gave you a lot of hang-ups and doubts and questions about God and church. And so when I say things that like your faith is your responsibility, it can seem a little bit harsh and like, ah, unnerving. Like if you knew what happened to me, if you knew, if you went through what I went through, if you had my backstory, you'd probably have these doubts and hang-ups too. And if that's you, I totally agree. I probably would. If I was in your situation and, and I was wronged by the church or you had a negative experience or someone in church misrepresented Jesus to you or the church at large when you were growing up, they misrepresented what it actually meant to follow Jesus to you. And because of that, you have hang-ups and doubts and, and questions. I'm not saying it's your fault. I want to clarify. When I say that your faith is your responsibility, I'm not saying that your doubts and your questions and your hang-ups are your fault. I think it's absolutely legit, and I think in, those, in a lot of those situations, most of us can relate. If we went through those things, we would have the same hang-ups hang as well. But at the end of the day, I do think the decision that you make to follow Jesus and to address those hang-ups and to move forward with that is ultimately in the ball is in your court. And the difference between someone that owns their faith versus someone that never addresses their hang-ups and doubts is someone that realizes that their faith is their own responsibility, and that ultimately it's up to you whether or not you allow your faith to be controlled by your past or you take ownership of it now. Again, I want to make clear, it's, it's not your fault, but there's a difference between it being your fault and your responsibility and what you do with it now, whether you address those doubts and those hang-ups. And speaking of doubts and hang-ups, the second reason, the second characteristic that people have, um, of people that have ownership of their faith, is when you have ownership of your faith, you know the reason behind your faith. You know why you believe the things you believe. And again, I think a lot of people here grow up with doubts and hang-ups, and one of the main verses that kind of stands behind this is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where Peter says, and if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. If someone asks you, hey, why do you believe the things you believe? Why, do you, why are you a follower of Jesus? And especially during Peter's time when the church was just getting started and following Jesus was a relatively new movement, he tells the followers of Jesus, hey, you gotta know why you believe what you believe so when people ask, you can be willing to share it. And a lot of times this verse is framed in the context of like apologetics or defending the faith. Yo, if someone asks you about Jesus, you gotta be ready to spit your facts, know your text, know like the logic behind why Jesus is legit um, so that you can defend Jesus and you can, you know, kind of in the spirit of evangelism. And for me growing up, um, I grew up, uh, I was lucky enough to grow up in an Adventist home, and, and my parents were very faithful, and church was a big part of my life. And I attended Adventist school up until the sixth grade. Um, and after sixth grade, from seventh grade till I graduated high school, I was in the local public school system. And because of that, this verse became very, very real to me, in the sense that I feel like when you grow up in academy, for the most part, most people in your school and your classes share similar beliefs and faith to you. At least for me, most of my friends grew up in the Adventist church. Most of them went to an Adventist church on Saturdays, and you know, we, you know, we kind of understood where each other were coming from. Uh, but once they transferred to a public school, 
it was very, very different. So there were, first of all, there were no Adventists um, when I went to junior high when I first uh, moved there and went to high school. There was like one other Adventist person, and it was like the most amazing thing ever. But for the most part, a lot of my friends kind of had questions. Like, hey, like, why don't you do certain things? Why do you believe the way you believe? And it forced me to answer and ask myself a lot of questions that I had never really previously asked myself. Hey, like, let's hang out on Friday. You got any plans Friday night? Ah, I got to go to church. Hey, okay, well, then let's, do, let's move it to Saturday. Then. You can come Saturday, right? Ah, I go to church on Saturday. And they're like, what? You go to church Friday, Saturday, and Sunday? Like, ah, oh, no, I don't go on Sunday. They're like, what? All these questions, why don't you go on these? What? Wait, what? So you don't do what? How come you don't do these things? And the worst was, I think my friends, I think my friends that weren't Christian, or that had no very little religious background, were very like, all right, that's fine. You go to church on Saturday, you go to church on Sunday, it's all the same. We'll just hang out one of those days. But most of my friends were actually Christian. Um, and they went to, there are like a few mega like Korean churches where I lived. And most of them went to one of those two churches that worshiped on Sunday. And a lot of them were very like intrigued and interested by like, oh, you go to church on Saturday. Oh, interesting. And I think a lot of them kind of saw me as like an evangelistic project. Like, oh, we need, to, we need to get this guy to church and bring him to church on Sunday. And so a lot of times we would have these discussions, not super often, but we would talk about, they would ask me questions about why I believe what I believe and why do you go to church on Saturday. And like kind of the two main things they had was this concept of Sabbath and like state of the dead. They were very... Um, I don't know if interested is the right word. Offended is probably a better word, by the way, I was explaining things to them. And a lot of times we have these conversations, and I don't know if you've seen two kind of emotional high schoolers argue about something, but it's like really not pretty, and there's no like poise, and we're just like, ah, oh, like emotional. And a lot of times what would happen is they would ask me a question, and it had never occurred to me before. Like, I was like, I don't know. I think when you grow up in the church, there are certain sets of things that are just givens, right? Given this, given this, given that, let's believe in this. And some of my friends would be like, why is that a given? Like, how, what does that even mean? That like, what do you mean there's three gods in one? I'm like, you know, like three gods, there's like one, there's like, there's three of them, but they go to one. Like, you know what I'm talking about? You get it, you get it, trust me, you understand. And there are a lot of times when people ask me these questions, and I was like, it had never occurred to me like why I believed those certain things. And a lot of times, it, like, it was a really like rude awakening, like, oh, I don't know why. I don't know. My mom just told me that's the way it is. My pastor just told me that's the way it is. And then you can see it in the eyes. Ah, but my pastor told me this. And a lot of times it would just come down to he said, she said. And a lot of times it, it, it realized, both of us realized that like, neither of us really knew what we were talking about. And it was like a very like, eye-opening moment where like, we were like, spoon-fed these things. We were taught these things. You know, him, Sunday school, Sabbath school, from church. Um, you know, he went to like, Wednesday nights. He had a small group at his church as well. And when push came to shove and people genuinely asked us, hey, like, why do you believe the things you believe? What does it mean to believe the things that you believe? Hey, you believe in this state of the dead or the Sabbath. What, what does that mean? What has that done for your life? And a lot of times my answer would be, dude, I don't know. Like, I just know that's the right answer. And if they ask that in the class, like, I'll get a candy if I say that. And again, a lot of those things just come out to like, why do you honestly believe what you believe? But the crux of ownership comes down to when you truly understand the reason behind the things you believe in, it naturally leads to a sense of owning your own faith. And I would argue the more important part isn't just knowing why, but you believing that, what is the implication of your beliefs? If you believe that God is, is the creator of the universe, if you believe God is your father and your friend and this omnipotent being, what is that implication for your life? You say you believe that God is your friend and God cares about you and, and you commune with God daily. What is the impact of that? What does that mean for you? How has that changed your life? Which I would argue are much more powerful testaments than simply proof texting and, and you know, answers that we've been taught in Sabbath school. 
And again, 1 Peter 3.15, the concept of, and if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. A lot of times it's taken from the perspective of like, almost like an evangelistic effort. You need to be ready in case there's a soul that needs to be won by your logic and your reasoning. And not to say that there's not a time and place to explain your faith to others. But I genuinely think that in a lot of ways, what Peter is talking about here can benefit you more than anyone else. If you truly know why you believe what you believe, why you're in this pew right now, why you're listening to me and you took a day of the week to, to, to give to God and you understand what the implications of those reasons are, it naturally leads to a sense of, yes, I believe these things and I found these things to be true. People that own their faith know the reason behind it. So um, that brings to another kind of tension that maybe a lot of people have been thinking and Maybe there's some of you, and I think a lot of us that grew up in the church, you go through that process at some point, you know, whether you're in high school, college, once you got married or your job. At some point, especially if you grew up in the church, you naturally start to ask yourself the questions. My mom told me this. My dad told me this. My pastor told me this. My Bible teacher, Sabbath school teacher told me this. But what does that actually mean? And... Do I actually believe this stuff, or is it just because I was raised on it? And for a lot of us, we ask that question at different points in your life, but for anyone that considers themselves a mature Christian and having ownership of their faith, you've probably already asked yourselves those questions at some point. Why do I believe what I believe? What does it look like? And maybe there's some people in here where you went through that experience, and you're like, you know what? I don't believe what I believe. I thought about it, and my mom and people told me this, and I thought about it as an older adult, and I don't believe that stuff anymore. I'm out. And if you're in that position, I'm glad you listened to us and grateful you're here at church. But I want to ask you this question because I think you owe it to yourself to genuinely ask, the reason you leave, the reason you walked away from faith, was it because you felt that the character of Jesus was unattractive or that Jesus was someone not worth following? Or were you put off by Christians and people that claimed to follow Jesus? And was that the reason why you walked away from faith? And I think you owe it to yourself to ask the question, did you walk away genuinely because you felt like Jesus in his character and as the Bible portrays him was someone not worth following? That he had an unattractive character for whatever reason, this is not someone I can follow or give my life to or trust my life with? Or was it because of misrepresentation of Jesus' character or what it meant to follow Jesus by other people that claimed to follow him? Again, when you know the reason for what you believe and you understand what it means to believe and to follow Jesus, it's a strong indication that your faith is your own. And I think a lot of people that, that have ownership of their faith, they share that trait. I know why I believe. I've come to terms with it. I've questioned it. I've backed it up and now I've internalized it as my own. And the third reason, um, the third kind of characteristic that people that own their faith have, the first one being your faith, they understand that their faith is their own responsibility. The second, um, they know the reason behind their faith. The third is this. It's a little bit of a different take, but I would argue the most difficult part of, of owning your faith and, and committing to following Jesus, people that own their faith won't give up on it. People that own their faith won't give up on that. And again, we talked about it um, earlier in the series that following Jesus, truly being a disciple of Jesus, requires a certain level of commitment. Nicodemus at first just made a decision to believe in who he is, but by the end of his life, he was transformed to someone that committed to following Jesus. And again, I, most of us know this when it comes to any sort of committed relationship, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a family member, a sibling, a friend, whatever it may be, all committed relationships require some form of effort and perseverance, and it gets really tough, especially the rubber meets the road in a committed relationship when you have conflict. I would argue the hardest part of a committed relationship and being in a committed relationship with someone that you care about is when you come to a place where you guys are at an impasse and there's a conflict and they don't see the way you see it, you don't see the way they see it, you want your way and they want their way, and then it comes down to what happens now. 
if you're in a committed relationship and you meet conflict, where does your relationship with that person go? And I think a lot of times um, we can see that in our, in our walk with God. A lot of us say, I follow God, I have a relationship with God. But I would argue a lot of times the hardest part of following Jesus comes like fresh off of sin, fresh off of you doing something you know you probably shouldn't have done, you saying something you probably shouldn't have said, you thinking something, you going somewhere, and you realize and you have that moment of like guilt and regret, and you're like, I probably shouldn't have done that. Ah, I'm going to regret that later. And in that moment, what happens to your faith with Jesus? Where, where, do you, where do you stand with God? I feel like for a lot of people, that's when you're like, ah, you know what? I'm just going to distance. I need some space from God right now. It's a little weird. I think Adam and Eve give the perfect example, right? Right after they sin, they're like, oh, I can't be with God right now. Let's put some distance. Let's hide. Let's cover ourselves. This is not a great feeling, and I don't want God to be in my life right now. I'm still reeling from the regret and the consequences of my sin. But people that have ownership of their faith won't allow those things to, to, to erode their faith and to give up on them. And I think the best example that the Bible shares of someone that really holds on to their faith and doesn't give up on it is uh, the Old, Old Testament character, Jacob. And so again, when I think about someone that like holds on and doesn't give up on their faith, this image of of Jacob wrestling with God comes to mind. But to give some context, again, it's kind of a famous story where, where Jacob wrestles with God and he has his, his, his epiphany. But to give some context as to what happens in that story, where Jacob just came from and where he's just headed towards, um, Jacob is someone, when you think about, like, he's considered like the father of faith. He's the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac, and his kids are the ones that become the 12 tribes of Judah. And really, he, his name becomes Israel. And all of these people, God's chosen people, become henceforth known as the Israelites. So it's kind of an honored position to be in. He's kind of a revered character in the Bible. But when you look at the story of Jacob, he's definitely a less than honorable person. And he does a lot of things in his life that makes you question, like, how does this person make it into the Bible? Like, this is some really questionable stuff because in this moment, so right before he wrestles God, he just came from leaving his uncle's house. So the story of Jacob begins where he kind of leaves his family home after destroying his relationship with his family. He deceives his blind father with the help of his mother, and he steals the blessing from his older brother. So basically, cut ties with everyone in his family, messes up that entire family relationship, and he bounces, and he goes to his uncle's house, Laban. And at Laban's house, um, he spends 14 years there working for two of his wives, and he marries two of Laban's, Laban's daughters. And after spending a few years there, he realizes, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't like the way he treats me. This is enough is enough. Let's get out of here. And so one day, when Laban is out shearing sheep, he just takes what he thinks is his. All right, these sheep are mine. These two women, my wives. And he just leaves. And he doesn't tell Laban, and he just, he just bounces. But when you read the story of, of, of Jacob... You can like, ah, okay, Laban is kind of a terrible person to him. You can kind of make the argument like maybe that wasn't the worst thing in the world. But he leaves, and it's sort of shady, but you can make the argument it's not entirely wrong. Laban comes back, and he finds, oh, my goodness, where are my daughters and like a third of my assets? Where do they all go? And people tell him, hey, Jacob took his stuff, and he left. And so he gets on horse, and he chases Jacob down. It takes him a week. And you can imagine, again, when you read the story of Jacob, Laban isn't the best character either. But imagine someone took half your assets and your two daughters and just left. Even if he was married to them, it's like not a great feeling to have when you come back home after shearing sheep. So he chases them down, and on the way there, he's fuming. He's so mad. How can you do this to me? Um, and it's only because he sleeps all night, and an angel tells him, hey, you need to leave Jacob alone. He's under my protection. That he comes up to Jacob, and he has this, like, 
sort of restrained, but he's clearly very upset with Jacob. He's like, how can you do this to me? We've been, I'm your family. We could have had this huge celebration, at least a goodbye party for you. Why are you wronging me like this? And Jacob defends himself, and there's this very awkward kind of conversation where Jacob's like, I don't think I did anything wrong. And Laban's like clearly angry, but the angel told him to, to not do anything to him. So he kind of has this weird, awkward goodbye. And he's like, let me at least say goodbye to my daughters and my grandchildren. And he does, blesses them, and he leaves. So he just... This is what Jacob just did, right? He just, he left. It's definitely kind of a shady act. You can argue, not the greatest thing to do. He's doing that. In the very next chapter, again, he's heading in the direction of Bethel, and on the way there, he's, he's got to pass by his older brother's place, Esau. And the last interaction he had with Esau was him stealing Esau's birthright and, birthright and blessing and leaving. So again, this is the last interaction he's had with them. So he's very clearly super nervous, and before this, this, this meeting with Esau, he's putting a lot of things together in his mind, and he realizes he might actually kill me. Esau might be so mad enough. I know him. He's the bigger, angrier, hairier brother. He might actually kill me. So what he does is he separates his group, his caravan, his family, and his ass, and says, okay, we'll split you guys up in two groups. If he kills one of you guys, the other half can get away. This is like a legitimate thought. He's genuinely prepared for like members of his family and his group to die. And he's very scared about this. And because of that, he sends gifts ahead and trying to appease, appease Esau. And at night, he's sitting there in his camp, um, and he's just separated his flock. He's put one group here, one group there, and he's sitting in an empty campground, kind of like simmering and what's going to happen. I'm arguing, probably a little bit nervous, a little bit scared of what's going to happen. Um, and he feels a hand on his shoulder, and one thing leads to another, and he starts wrestling with this unknown person. And as he's wrestling, um, Ellen White gives a little bit of context into what was going on in that moment. While he was battling for his life, and again, wrestling with this unknown, again, at this point, he doesn't know who this person is. While he was battling for his life, the sense of guilt pressed upon his soul, and his sins rose up before him to shut him out from God. There's this moment where he's wrestling with God, and he's wrestling with this person, and he gets this feeling of all the, the, the terrible things he's done. Again, this meeting he's going to have with Esau is just filled with, I did all these terrible things, and the reason I'm, I'm in this predicament is because I wronged Esau. I took matters into my own hands, and I backstabbed a member of my family. I'm just coming from an interaction where I kind of backsided my uncle and took his two daughters and kind of broke up that family. He's basically coming from a lot of brokenness and a lot of, the name Jacob itself means deceiver. And so he's coming from a lot of things he's not very proud of. And in this moment, a lot of those things are welling up inside of him. And his sins rose up before him to shut him out from God, which I think is, is something a lot of us can relate to. This aspect of, I feel really guilty. I have a lot of regret. I need some distance from God. And again, it's kind of that Adam and Eve effect. I did something wrong. I don't, I don't really feel like praying right now. I don't really feel like opening up my Bible right now. The last thing I want to hear is like Holy Spirit right now. I just, I want to stay away from him. But, and Elamite continues, the very next sentence, but in his terrible extremity, he remembered God's promises, and his whole heart went out in entreaty for his mercy. And there's this moment for Jacob, he feels the sin and the guilt and all these terrible things, but he's like, no, I still, what I need right now is to be in God's presence. And then there comes a point in this wrestling match where it's like going nowhere, and the person Jacob is wrestling just reaches out and lightly touches his hip, and it says his hip was kind of thrown out, or his leg fell out of his socket. Basically, he's crippled at this point, and he's got one leg now. And in this moment, Jacob realizes, oh, I am not wrestling a human being. This is something supernatural going on right here. And this is where Ellen White says. And there's a moment where he's thrown out, and Jacob realizes this is not an ordinary man. And she writes, the patriarch, Jacob, was now disabled and suffering the keenest pain, but he would not loosen his hold 
all penitent and broken, he clung to the angel. He wept and made supplication, pleading for a blessing. He must have the assurance that his sin was pardoned. Physical pain was not sufficient to divert his mind from this object. His determination grew stronger, his faith more earnest and persevering until the very last. The minute he realizes this is an angel, this is God himself, he realizes I cannot let go of this person. By all means, all these feelings I have, all this guilt and shame, I need to bring it to this person. You're the only person that can do something about this. Let me hold on to you. And then the angel tells him, you need to let go. Day's coming up, you need to let go. And he tells him, I refuse. I will not let go of you until you bless me. And Ellen White says this, had this, boastful, presumptuous, had this been a boastful, presumptuous confidence, Jacob would have been instantly destroyed. But this was the assurance of one who confesses his own unworthiness, yet trusts the faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God. In other words, in Jacob's moment of weakness and in the midst of his guilt and regret of the decisions he's made over the course of his life, he realized that despite his sin, Maybe because of his sin, because of who he was and what he had done, you could argue because of his sin, he needed to cling to God and letting go of God in this moment of weakness and regret simply wasn't an option for him. And as far as owning your faith goes, as far as taking control and realizing this faith and internalizing it as your own goes, I think this is one of the greatest examples of someone that refuses to give up on his faith despite the rough patches in his relationship with God. Again, if, if you view sin as in conflict with God and incompatible with God, Jacob had so much of that. Jacob's whole, I mean, he's just one mess up after another. He's, he hasn't done very honorable things in his life, yet he realizes that and he holds on to God and says, I cannot give up on this relationship. I need you all the more because I realize who I am, because I understand what I've done. And this also reveals a very important truth about the character of God. That is especially in these moments of our weakness, in our guilt, and in our shame, and our regret, that he's willing to come to our side and remind us of his presence and of who he really is. And that's why I think this, this concept of Jacob wrestling with God is such a powerful testament to what it really looks like to not give up on your faith, to own your faith and realize I'm not going to give up on it because times are rough. Maybe be, especially because times are rough, especially because I'm going through doubts and insecurities and, and questions and, and I'm not really the best version of myself right now. Those are the moments that are especially when we need God the most and Jacob shows it in this wrestling match. So to recap, there are three very important characteristics. Again, people that own their faith realize it's their responsibility. If you've been hurt and you have doubts and concerns, it's not your fault. But at the end of the day, Jesus has placed the ball in your court. I've made my stance clear. I love you. I want to be a part of your life. I'll continue to influence you. But as far as following me, making me your God and you my son and my daughter, that ball is in your court. It's your responsibility. Two, knowing the reason behind your faith. And yes, there's an aspect of evangelism and, and apologetics that's tied to this. But truly, if you know the reason for your faith, why you believe what you believe, and what it means to believe what you believe, you'll internalize and own your faith. And the third characteristic of people that own their faith is that they won't give up on it because times are tough or because they fall into sin. If anything, all the more reason you need God by your side. I think the natural question once you realize these three things and these three characteristics is, now what? Okay, okay, those three things, if you have those things, that's someone that owns their faith. But how can I sustainably live a life of ownership in following Jesus? What does that actually look like? Because I would make the, I would make the argument that it is possible, it is possible for us to do God's will. It is possible for us to do the right thing. It is possible for us to try to follow Jesus in an, us, in an unsustainable manner that leads to burnout, that leads to bitterness, that leads to disillusionment. And so the verse statement for this week is this. Self-empowered, 
versus spirit-filled. Self-empowered versus spirit-filled in regards to your relationship with Jesus and you following Jesus. And what this statement really highlights is the fact that I think it's possible in your relationship with Jesus for you to close your eyes, grit your teeth, and tell yourself, I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to do the right things. I'm going to have love, joy, peace. I will cultivate that on my own through my own self-empowerment and try to follow Jesus. I will try to do the right thing um, no matter what it takes. And I think that that image of, of Christianity, that image of what it looks to follow Jesus, um, and a lot of us, that's kind of been what we've subconsciously been taught in some ways, especially when it pertains to like doing the right thing. Following Jesus means you do the right thing. Following Jesus means you be a good person. Following Jesus means you read the Bible and you pray. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. And a lot of times, it can feel like we just like, I think a word a lot of us use when it comes to our relationship with Jesus is motivation. Like, I need to, like, dig deep and pull out and, like, just, uh, like, I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be a better Christian. I'm going to do these things. But the reality is when it comes to sustainably and truly following Jesus, at least in the way that he meant it, you cannot be a follower of Jesus unless you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And self-empowering yourself to follow Jesus only leads to regret, leads to burnout, leads to bitterness, and leads to estrangement from God. And I think this is shown, Jesus makes an example of this um, in the story of the ascension. So at the very end of Jesus' life, just after he's been crucified, he's resurrected, and he's about to go to heaven, he famously gives this proclamation to his disciples. We know this as, as the Great Commission. He says, Go there, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We know this, and we as Christians today take this to heart as well as our commission, where Jesus, before he leaves, says, all right, I'm gone. I'm going to heaven, but this is your job now. Right? The journey continues. Go, therefore. You guys, the people I'm talking to here, make disciples. And then they'll make more disciples, and we'll spread this word and tell people about who I am, what I've done, and the things that you've seen. That's your mission. But... Jesus also very importantly makes this distinction in Luke. And he says, and now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my father promised. So Jesus is talking about how he's going to leave. I'm not going to be with you anymore. Everyone's very sad. But he tells them this. And now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Luke chapter 24. In the Great Commission, Jesus reveals, this is my will. This is what I want you to do. Jesus' will for his followers is that they make disciples and spread the word. My will for you is to go spread this good news about the things that have happened and to let everyone know. But in Luke, Jesus clarifies how they want them to do it. The way you're going to do this is that you're going to wait here for the Spirit. And once the Spirit enters into your life and you have the power of the Holy Spirit, then you are to go and make disciples and do the things that I've told you to do. And I thought about it, and people in the book that I was reading talked about, like, the potential consequences of what it would have looked like had they not followed that procedure, right? Let's say Jesus is leaving and says, all right, go, therefore, make, all, make disciples of all nations. I'm out. And he leaves, right? And people that truly follow Jesus, what would you do in that moment? Um, and people that didn't follow Jesus would argue you can go into one of two categories, right? Either if these people truly were followers of Jesus, they would either try to make it work, like, okay, well, like, he said to make disciples, let's make a group huddle, let's brainstorm, let's come up with a business plan, like, who's going to go where? We'll just figure this out. We'll just tough it out. But if you look at the group of 11 disciples that Jesus left behind, that, that's not a group of people that can start, like, this cultural revolution and spread the word. Like, they, they were uneducated. They were, didn't really get along with each other. Like, that's not a group of people that you can look like. Yeah, these are the people that are going to change the world. These are the people that tell people about Jesus. 
That's really not the group. And you would argue, without the Holy Spirit, the other alternative would have been that Peter and James and John would have just gone back to fishing. Jesus leaves. There's no Jesus anymore. The Holy Spirit is inside of them. The, other, the only other alternative is, I guess we'll just go back to what we know. And we'll just go back to fishing, and Matthew can go back to being a tax collector, and we'll just, it's like it never happened. But, but because they decided to wait in Jerusalem and follow Jesus' instructions, they wait, and as Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit comes and fills them with his power, and the first thing they do is something they have no business doing, talking in other languages. And people are astonished, and they're like, oh my goodness, is this not the uneducated fisherman Peter? Like, how is he speaking my language? And again, the, the work of the Holy Spirit is what really catalyzes this great commission. And, and really, you could argue this would have never happened. This would have been a catastrophic catastrophic failure had these men and these apostles just sat and decided to take matters into their own hands. I'll follow Jesus, but I don't need the Holy Spirit. I'll figure it out on my own. Had that been the discipline and had that been the attitude, this thing would have never come to fruition. And this shows later on in Acts chapter 4 what the Holy Spirit filling their life actually looked like. In Acts chapter 4, the council of Jewish leaders brings Peter and John and like, what are you guys doing? How dare you guys do these things? How, how can you two uneducated fishermen like spread this word and make such a big impact in our community. You don't know scripture like that. You don't know logic like that. You don't have the education. And just before Peter gives his statement, it says the Holy Spirit then filled Peter and he gave a spiel and he convinced everyone in this argument and everyone in the council, these educated Pharisees and learned men were astonished. And it says in, in Acts chapter four, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John for they could see they were ordinary men with no special training in scripture. And it was precisely because they were filled with the Holy Spirit that empowered them to do the will of Jesus. But if you grew up in the church, um, it, it's possible that when people talk about this aspect of like being filled with the Spirit, it can seem a little bit like ethereal, a little bit like mystical, a little bit vague. Like what is, what do you mean be filled with the Spirit? Like following Jesus, I know that. Do the right thing. I read the Bible, pray. I, when you say follow Jesus, certain key phrases come to mind. Being filled with the Spirit, despite the fact that it's almost verbatim from Scripture, that idea just seems a little, I mean, is that like, how, how do you get filled with the Spirit? Is it like, like a technique? Is it like, what do you do? And it can seem a little bit like, almost scary. Like, what does that actually mean? Like, is that you just drink something? Like, what do you do? How can you be filled with the Holy Spirit in your life? And Paul gives us this illustration in Galatians chapter 5, and it's very simple, but I argue very profound. In Galatians 5.25, he says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And again, he says this just after he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. He lists the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and he says, if you're to live by the Spirit, you must keep in step with the Spirit. And it's a very profound but very simple illustration in that I don't know if you've ever tried walking like perfectly in step with someone. Um, in high school, I uh, was part of this program called ROTC. For those of you that don't know what it is, it's essentially like Pathfinders meets Boy Scouts meets like the military. And so I did that in high school for whatever reason. And one of the things that I did as part of that was I was part of this drill team. And what we had to do was basically there were three rows, four rows of like eight guys. And we were in a line. And all you had to do was just march in as straight of a line as possible. That's all you had to do, just march and turn, and basically you had to be as one singular unit, unit as possible. And I joined the team because I was like, basic. That's so easy. And then you get to go on all the trips, and you get to hang out with everyone. I was like, all right, this is the team. I can't really spin a rifle. I can't do a bunch of push-ups, but I can walk in a line. When I say that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, I don't know if it's because I wear glasses and my periphery ends like right around here, 
But there's something about like having to walk perfectly in step. And I don't know if you've ever seen any of those videos of like those drill teams, those marching bands, where there's like definitely a row of people, but when you, when you look down at their legs, it looks like there's just one leg swinging across. And that's essentially, that's what we were going for. And when I say, like, we would have practice in the summer, and it's like 95 degrees in SoCal heat, a bunch of sweaty teenagers in black T-shirts. They made us wear black T-shirts, and we're standing there and, like, trying to walk. And, like, hey, you're a little bit off. You're a little bit off. You're a little bit off. Hey, keep your head up. Your footsteps are too slow. Like, you have to look. It was genuinely one of the most frustrating, difficult things I've ever done in my life. And unless... You're perfect, like you're constantly aware of the people to your left, to your right. I tried so hard to be the person on the left. If you're the furthest person on the right, you don't got to worry about anything because everyone matches to you. I tried so hard to be that person, but I was in the middle, so I had to keep track of this person and this person. I was walking, I was like, oh my goodness, like what is going on? Genuinely one of the hardest things I've done. And really, if for a moment, you just like glaze off or think about something else, you naturally will speed up or slow down and then someone yells at you and everyone yells at you. And it's really hard to do. But even if you haven't really done anything like that, I would argue just walking with someone one-on-one requires, unless you are the exact same size and have the exact same temperament, it's really hard to genuinely walk step-by-step with someone. And I don't know, I think this happens to me more often than most people, but sometimes I'm walking and talking with someone, I get really excited. And I'm talking, I'm like, yeah, dude, don't you think? And I'm walking, and all of a sudden I'm like, who am I talking to right now? They look around, and all my friends are way back there. And again, there's this concept of walking with someone. Again, this is such a simple illustration that Paul gives, but walking in step with the Spirit implies a a certain amount of intentionality and consistency, right? The minute you just glaze off and do your own thing, it's really easy to lose track of the person next to you and for you to walk off and do your own thing. Slow down, speed up, go to the left, go to the right. And as simple as this is, I think it, it implies so much of what it means to be filled with the Spirit and to walk in step with the Spirit. One of the things that I think it's necessary true about this is you can't really walk in step with someone you meet once a week. It's really hard for you to have ownership of your faith and live a life of a Spirit-filled Christian, a follower of Jesus, if the only interaction you have with Jesus is on Saturday between 12 and roughly 135, 140. If that's the only interaction you have with Jesus, you can't really walk with someone and be filled with the Spirit if that's the gist of your relationship with him. And again, something, an aspect of this Holy Spirit, and again, I think a lot of times, again, this is very mystical. What does it mean? I like to think of the phrase, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I was able to forgive that person. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I was able to become a new person. Think of anyone that you've met in your life, or maybe yourself, where you've seen someone's heart and personality and life change by no power of their own. It's really an amazing thing. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I overcame this thing I had. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I was able to reconcile this relationship. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I had peace after the loss of a loved one. That, I think, is the essence. And again, it sounds so mystical, but truly, I think the operative word of of filling your life with the Holy Spirit is the concept of surrender. Are you willing to give up an aspect of your life for the Holy Spirit to fill you from the inside out? And to go back to the first sign of ownership, we talked about this idea of responsibility. Your faith is your responsibility. And again, we clarified, it's not your fault, but really what I mean by your responsibility is that whether or not you choose to abide in Jesus, whether or not you allow Jesus into your life, That's your responsibility. As far as change goes, as far as your life being changed, and as far as, you know, these desires being taken away, that's not on you at all. That's all the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's a reason why. I think a lot, we talked about this in Sabbath school with the youth. A lot of times it seems like when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, it's 
if you're a Christian, you should do these things, right? If you got baptized and you sit here, you're going to tell me you believe in Jesus, you better be a loving person. You better not be that aggressive. You better be gentle. You better be patient. You better be kind. You better be long. You better be doing all these things. But when you read Galatians 5, that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is if you allow the Spirit into your life, he will naturally grow these things into your life. There's a reason it's called the fruit of the Spirit as opposed to, like the gardening tools or gardening procedure of the Spirit. It's something that just comes naturally when the Spirit is inside of you. And if you really have to try and grit your teeth to try to be a loving and kind person, that often leads to burnout, disillusionment, um, and estrangement from God. And this is the reason why, again, these virtues, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are a result of the Spirit changing your heart on His terms, not your own, and empowering you to follow Jesus and to do his will. Truly to follow Jesus, it's, it's pretty much impossible to do it on your own without surrendering to the Holy Spirit. And my life, uh, really, and, and to end, I can't really end this week's sermon without, without adding this. Um, this week, this week, three years ago, uh, was when I first moved to Portland. And, and really, when it talks to this concept of owning faith, I, I, I kind of have to share this aspect of, for me, I was lucky enough to grow up uh, in a church um, in a church setting with my parents who were faithful Christians, my parents were very involved in church, and, and I feel very blessed to have, that, to have had that privilege. But for me, the concept of owning my own faith, of making this faith my own, and saying that Yahweh, Jesus, he's my God, and I am his son, really came, the, the rubber met the road kind of in high school and college when I decided to, to follow his call um, into ministry. And not to say that if you choose to follow Jesus if you're in high school, that he's going to call you to be a pastor. He's probably not. Most people uh, that are Christians aren't pastors. But for me, that just happened to be my calling. And I still remember like, coming to this internship and Rock offered me this internship after my junior year of college. And I don't know if a lot of people know this, but I didn't really know Pastor Chris before I came here. We had never really talked. I knew he was a pastor at camp meeting. I'd seen him around. I didn't really know him. I didn't really know where Portland was, to be honest, like in high school. Like it's somewhere between San Francisco and Canada, but I'm not really sure. It's all like, you know, there's just a lot of trees up there. I didn't really know anyone here at the time. Chan, one of my closest friends in college and my roommate for one year, was here. But even he was like, I don't know if I'm going to be in Portland when you're there. And so there's a lot of stuff that was up in the air. And so for anyone that's here in this room, um, as through this series that I've been thinking like, yeah, I get that I'm supposed to make a commitment to following Jesus, but it sounds like making a decision to just believe in him is a lot more convenient. You're not wrong. It sounds like Jesus is supposed to be the one and only thing in my life, but to relegate him and compartmentalize him into one aspect of my life is much more convenient on me. You also wouldn't be wrong, right? And there's a lot of kind of, I think, fear of the unknown that comes with, okay, well, if I choose to follow Jesus, if I make him a significant part of my life, like what is he going to want from me? He's going to make me move to, like, Africa and be a missionary. Is he going to, like, you know, make me do these crazy things? What is God going to take away from my life that I love so much? And I think there is definitely that fear that comes with stepping into a relationship with Jesus and truly saying, I'm going to surrender to the Holy Spirit. But for what it's worth, from my personal experience, I truly understand that fear from the bottom of my heart. Let me tell you, like, I don't, I still distinctly remember, like, showing up, on a Tuesday night to Dan's house with a backpack, a suitcase, like a, just a tub, and just like, this is my life. <laughs> and, you know, I, he had a guest bedroom downstairs, and I was sitting there, and I was like, what am I doing? That's crazy. Oh, my goodness. And then, you know, finding an apartment. And my, I distinctly remember my first night in my apartment, I just had a mattress. I didn't have a bed for me. I just had a mattress on the floor, and I was staring at the ceiling, and I was like, 
what am I doing right now? Where am I? What in the world is going on? And praying like, God, I just want to make sure you wanted me here, right? I just want to make sure we're on the same page because I don't think I can do any of this stuff um, on my own. And time after time in ministry, this kept coming up. Like, I can't do this. Like, what do you, what do you want me? You want me to like have these, this sort of influence on your kids and teach them and baptize kids and hang out and, you know, t- tell them about Jesus' love? I can't do any of that stuff. Are you kidding me? And there were so many moments in my life when I was like felt out of my depth. But to this day, I truly believe that that was the, the real catalytic moment for me where I was like, this faith is mine though. I'm here because I truly believe God wanted me in Portland. And these past three years have genuinely changed my life. And like, I, there are so many moments when, when people at Rock, individuals come up to me and, and tell me that they appreciate me and that they're glad I'm here. And people have done it personally. The church at large kind of did it um, when Dan came up a few months ago in October and, and gave it an appreciation for myself and Pastor Chris. But I don't know that I've really been able to express my gratitude and thankfulness for this church in showing me and allowing me to really take ownership of my own faith and live out what it really means to have Jesus and God be my personal God and that he accepts me as his son. And truly, it's taken me to places that were genuinely beyond my imagination and being able to serve him and the joy of like feeling that God has used me for something bigger than myself has genuinely, genuinely changed my life in ways that I could never, ever imagine. And so for what it's worth, from a 25-year-old, three years into ministry, just finishing whatever residency in Uga program you consider this, following Jesus, taking that ownership of your faith while it comes with fears and doubts and uncertainties. And yes, it is a bigger commitment to follow Jesus as opposed to just believing in him. Yes, it is much more, you could argue, inconvenient for you to try to have Jesus be an aspect of every part of your life as opposed to just something you think about on Saturdays. But for what it's worth for me, I found over the past three years, it's absolutely worth it. And it'll take you to places that you, you could never have even imagined. And the more I do this, the more I realize, like, I'm so humbled by the fact that God would use and love someone like me, despite who I am, just because I've accepted him as my God and understood that I am his son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, we are, I'm in God and humbled um, in gratitude by who you are and what you've done and, and um, what you've done not just through me, but throughout history and through your relationship with humanity in general, God. We thank you so much um, that you are who you say you are, God, and that you are someone that has taken the first step and the initiative into sharing your love for us, God, and that you care for us, um, that you want to be a part of our lives, but you love us enough to leave that ball in our court, Lord. Lord, there's, there's a lot to ask for, I think. There's a lot to consider when it comes to truly following you, God, and taking ownership of our faith. And in many ways, it truly is easier to just go with the flow and just take the path of least resistance and just flow through life acknowledging your acknowledging your presence but not really allowing you into our lives father and if there's anyone in this room that's kind of on the fence not sure they they know the things they know what it means to be a christian they know the beliefs they know the theology but have yet to really make that decision to to allow you into your life to allow the holy spirit to impact them and to change them from the inside out father i ask that you remind them again of your love make your love real in their life and remind us that you don't really want anything from us but you want so many things for us god because you are who you are god you are yahweh and a god of love compassion and mercy that is willing to work with us and be by our side thank you for who you are the promises that you made and the assurance that we have in who you are i praise you in your son jesus name